0: Turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 11. I'm just going to read one verse, verse 30, and let's look at what it says. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. Amen. So the title of this message comes right from the scripture in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 30. He that wins souls is wise. Many, many good churches have died throughout the centuries, and there's many that are dying now. Orthodox in their theology, which we should be, teaching the right things from the Word of God, which we should do. With that in mind, why do these churches die? And I believe that the answer is found right here in verse 30. There's no winning of souls. There's no presentation of the Gospel to people whom the Bible declares are lost. And so if I was to ask you today, and now you know the answer is in front of you because you have the verse there. But if I was to ask you today, are you a wise person? And you're going to think a little bit about that and toss it back and forth as to decisions you make and other things. And you may come up with the answer that, you know, I think that I'm wise or something in between. Sometimes I'm wise, sometimes I'm not. But it's this word wisdom in verse 30. He that wins souls is wise. Now, there's other statements in the Bible about wisdom, but it deals with the fear of the Lord, and it deals with, well, just other aspects. It says, this is wisdom. Here is wisdom. We even have that concerning some Bible prophecies in the book of Revelation. Here is wisdom, Revelation 13. But it says here, he that wins souls is wise. And I'm going to give you an idea, which I've shared with you over the years, as to how this may apply to us here in our republic. What is it about winning souls that makes a person wise? Well, let me just make application for us here in America. I've had many discussions over the years, many, many years on politics. I've shared my views with you on politics that I have little confidence, not zero confidence, little confidence in the flesh whom we have the privilege of electing or the responsibility, however you wanna look at it. But I have little confidence that any man's gonna save us or even a group of people. And of course, the scriptures bear testimony to that same fact. Cursed be the man that trusteth the man, maketh flesh his arm. I have a little confidence, but whenever I've talked to people <coughs> about changing the nation, politically speaking, I've always said this, and you've heard me say this, the nation of the people, by the people, and for the people is only going to be as good as the people. And this is one of the questions that troubled some of the founders, like Benjamin Franklin, some others as well that if the people became very corrupted, well, obviously a government that's made up of the people and by the people and for the people can only obviously be as good as the people. When the people become corrupted, the government of the people, by the people, for the people is likewise corrupted. You also know my view, I've shared many times, maybe we could say this of every country, we get the government we deserve. I have this belief that I can't fully prove it, but I have a belief that the government that presides over us everywhere, even in little counties, is a reflection of the people, like a mirror. Now, that may not be wholly accurate, but I do believe that there's some truth to that. So, in our complaints and in our disgust and whatever else goes through our minds here in America, I suppose it could be said to some degree that we only have ourselves to blame. Now, it may not be you in particular or me in particular, but if you take the conglomerate put them all together in this country is a little over 333 million people. We're seeing in government, federal levels, state levels, county levels, a reflection of the people. That's just the way I picture it. We get a government that we deserve. And again, it's not down to every individual. But we can look to, you know, the book of Genesis, when Abraham is praying for Lot, specifically for Lot. He starts with this 50 righteous, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. God keeps saying, I won't destroy the city for the sake of those few people that are righteous. In the case of Sodom, in the case of Gomorrah, there was not even 10 righteous people. Lot escaped, his sons-in-laws did not, his two daughters, three people. And so for us, at least, we could see a very specific application to winning souls. Because if America now in the conglomerate, again, it's not going to include every single person on our shores or between shores, then we would have a righteous government because we vote these people in. And even when we complain that I didn't vote for so-and-so, your neighbor did. We're all Americans. In this alone, for you and me, if not for all the other considerations, which I'm not gonna go through them all, and stay with the general statement that he that wins souls is wise, in this respect, if we were just limited to the time that we're spending here on earth, he that wins souls is wise. They know what would really change a country. Let's look at that in reverse. Let's look at Marxism, communism. And what they do is they make converts. They point to the merits of socialism, Marxism, communism, whatever, and people buy it, so they're converted to that. They're converted to that ideology, because it sounds good. And as you know, the problem with socialism or communism, one thing is not factored in, wasn't factored in by Marx or Stalin, I suppose, by any of them, is the heart of man that it's inclined towards sin, to breaking God's commandments. Now if you take it as a pure system, let's all put our money in one place and you know someone that we trust is going to divide it up evenly and that would be a good plan. It's actually in the book of Acts. But that's not how it works out. And you know that. So what I'm just trying to point out that the naive and uninitiated to the Word of God and to life in general buy into something that sounds good but just doesn't work. And the evil that it brings, well, we know enough about that. They're converted. And while Christians sleep, communists, Marxists, and other religions, of course, they don't sleep. They're at it day and night to make converts. In that respect, we could apply this designation of being wise to them. Because what we've become here in America and other countries around the world also is simply a matter of conversion. People were converted to an idea, to an ideology, and they bought it. And so now we have big problems. So back to my conversation, I'm thinking of one I had many, many years ago, about 30, with a young man at the time, he was a young man, and he was talking about politics and what we need in government. I said, well, let's think of it this way, if we as Christians were doing our jobs and preaching the gospel and spreading the gospel and going into the marketplace and inviting people to Christ, not necessarily to church, but they go hand in hand, inviting people to Christ, and people were actually converted then it's just kind of self-explanatory. That's why I keep saying to you, and you here certainly know uh, what I'm referring to, America in the 18th century had a great awakening and many, many souls were brought to Christ. The churches which were emptying out were filled back up again. People who had a disregard for all of God's laws now began to tremble with fear in the fear of the Lord and to live righteously. That, as is the case with man, didn't last terribly long, a few decades, until God was merciful enough to send a second great awakening to our country. And we had very similar results. Churches, once again, began to have people attending the services, preachers were talking from the word of God about righteousness and salvation, the blood of the cross, and so on. And uh, our nation did well again for a period of time. Now, I'm firmly convinced We need a third great awakening and be very careful, be very, very careful that you don't insert your politics. I don't care what side you're on, left, right, in the middle, I don't care, into this book. This book does not work well with anything except this book. It's separate. It's separate from everybody, uh, everybody's ideology, everybody's ideas. Well, the principles now in here we've adhered to obviously work very well. But I'm saying be very careful that you don't slip in your favorite politician in between this and make him or her a savior, because they're not. They never have been, they never will be. Jesus is the answer. But not, not as we say, well, just go to church. It's not that. It's coming directly to Christ. It's understanding what this book says. And so I want to share with you, he that wins souls is wise. And we have, I just mentioned, we have a certain way of applying it here as Americans that are unique to us and other governments that are either Republican-oriented, where people vote people in, or Democratic, what have you. Autocracies and dictatorships and stuff, it's limited to different applications, but either way, it's still wise. To win souls is wise. There was a very notorious criminal back in the late 19th century, late 1800s, by the name of Charles Pierce. He had been convicted of murder He was executed by hanging. And at his execution, as was the habit in England, they had an Anglican minister there just sharing the consolations of religion from the Anglican book. When the minister read these words, listen, Those who die without Christ experience hell, which is the pain of forever dying, without the release which death itself can bring. A pretty profound statement let me read it again those who die without christ experience hell which is the pain of forever dying without the release which death itself can bring and this man about to be executed when he heard the minister reciting these words in a kind of a chant you know the way we have in many christian denominations where it's just just words are just coming out i guess he picked up on that and he said to the minister, he said, if I really believed those words you have read, I would walk across England from coast to coast, even if it was covered with glass, even if I had to go on my hands and my knees to save one person from ever experiencing something that you just read about. Now, whether this man, after he was executed, actually believed it or not, does not, the story doesn't relate. But the fact is, there's a certain amount of profound truth in that. It's not so much whether others believe that there's actually a place called hell, it's whether we really believe it. And further, if we actually believe, as I mentioned during the communion service, if we actually believe Christ died to keep us from that place, well, that's good for us. But what about your family? What about your friends, the people that you work with? Because the Bible says here, he that wins souls is wise. And even if we don't apply it as I did politically, which we can here in America, We go beyond temporal things to eternal things. The question is today, do you really believe it? I don't know that this Anglican minister believed the words he was reading. It was just in a prayer book. And I think the man that was about to be executed picked up on that, perhaps. But anyway, he was saying, if I believed that, I'd walk across England from coast to coast, even if it was covered with broken glass or kneel and crawl to find one person to save them from the fate that you just read about. So really, you know, this really boils down to Do we really believe, as this book testifies, that there is no way out of that place and there is no way into the kingdom of God or to heaven and so on, but by Christ? Do we really believe that? That's the salient question. Not do others believe it. Are we convinced? Because even in our greatest of efforts, it's still God that saves. And even all that we do, no matter how altruistically we have our unselfish motives to help people find Christ, it's still Christ that saves It's still Christ that reaches down and saves a person. It's still that person that must say yes to the Lord. What I'm trying to convey is that if we truly believe this, this is what I just read to you, if we truly believe that that's what's going to happen, that that's what's going to happen today to men and women all over the world. If we truly believe that they're heading to a place where you want to die but can't because it's so horrible, I would submit to you that the very first thing that's going to change is your priorities in life. I do think it is with some difficulty, perhaps much difficulty, that you live a life, as I mentioned last week, that has happened to me many, many long years ago with eternity stamped on your eyeballs. Because no matter what you look at, you keep, I keep saying to myself, this is temporary. Thankfully, I can say that when it comes to problems. But even with good things, it's temporary. This whole world is temporary. Read the book of Ecclesiastes, and you see a man who certainly had it all, lost it all, did all the wrong things, And in that, he finally comes to the correct conclusion in the 12th chapter of Ecclesiastes. There's only really one thing that matters in life, fear God and keep his commandments. That's the whole duty of man. And keep in mind, once again, that Solomon had much more than probably all of us combined, well, not probably, more than all of us combined in this room right now. Vanity of vanity, it's all vanity. That was his discovery. And we would be wise to discover the same thing. We would be wise, as the book says, to be people who win souls. You've had this experience, no doubt. I have it a little more frequently than some of you because I eat so many fruits and vegetables. And there's certain type of fruits that decay quicker than others. Strawberries is one, berries in general. I remember just this picture comes to my mind of some grapes I was gonna use for my lunch. And you can see which grapes are already past ripe. As we know the expression, dying on the vine. Now, you look around, especially those of you who grew up in biblical teaching and in a good church, and you could probably tell me how many churches are closed now. And why did they close? Again, it wasn't because the doctrine wasn't correct or good. It wasn't because the people that once attended the church were not maybe fervent or dedicated or whatever. It's simply one reason. They weren't wise. They weren't wise enough to believe what they were taught and make it their life's mission to win souls. Now, believe me, I'm not saying this as braggadocia. That's not my intent. But as a leader, I assume that you expect me to be a few steps ahead of you. And it wasn't that long ago here in this sanctuary here where I could point right around the sanctuary all the people that I personally brought, not through the radio, not through television, but through just talking to them in the marketplace that sat in this sanctuary. There's been quite a few And I'm not saying that to shame you or to make me look like a superior individual. I'm just saying that's what we are supposed to do as Christians, not because I'm a pastor. I'm not doing it because I'm a pastor. I'm doing it because I actually believe what this text says. I actually believe what that text says. Those who die without Christ experience hell, which is the pain of forever dying. Think about that. Forever dying without the release which death itself can bring. I mean, I actually believe that. I have all my life. When I'm offended, When I'm in a position where I want to give up on somebody, I find myself unable to. doesn't mean I have to continue to be around them and put up with their nonsense, but for the prayer, because this is much too serious, that fate announced in the Bible is much too serious to discard. And just to simply say, well, I don't feel like doing this anymore. I have always lived my life, not so much because I'm comfortable because I'm not, but because it's my duty. And I have to be at my post, and I have to be on duty all the time. And so what I'm trying to say is that the pastor should be an example to you. Now, let me ask you this question as well. I want you to take a moment to think of all the people who now know Christ because you shared the gospel with them. And I want to see if you can name them like that, because I can. People I've led to, the, you know, in my house, wherever I was, people I've sat down and talked to them who were professing Christ, and it wasn't here in the church, not only in the church, out in the marketplace how many people come to your mind like right away and you can say wow that's yeah, this song and so and so they now know christ because you were there to lead them to the savior and you say okay well i'm coming up with some names now here's the second thing how long ago was that it was a year ago six months ago just last week my guess and it's only a guess that a lot of you are going to say well see what there's 10 no i think it was 20 years ago see that's why churches die on the vine It's because, as we read in Revelation chapter 2, the very first church that Jesus deals with at Ephesus, see, they had correct doctrine. We would assume, you know, good teaching as we have it from a pulpit. And they had a prayer life. And they were trying who's a false teacher and who's a true teacher. And all of that, they were commended by the Lord. But he says, I have one thing against you. You lost your love for me. For those of you who've been around a while, and the Bible uses the word saved, you've been saved, Can you remember when you just told everybody? Uh, That was me. I literally told everybody. I mean, as many people as I ran into, of the change that was in my life. The problem is after you get comfortable and you're in a routine, and as I mentioned, you have these good churches where people come. Well, that's what they're supposed to do. Christians are supposed to gather together. And then you have correct doctrine and you have whatever we're commanded to do. And you have that, but you're missing that one thing. No one's being led to Christ through you you personally. And we don't, at this period of history, want to be making excuses why I'm just not a soul winner. You see, because Jesus says this, I'm going to paraphrase this and interpolate just a little bit. Jesus says, don't leave Jerusalem, but be filled with the Holy Spirit and you'll be my witnesses. So that applied to everybody. And it didn't say, well, if you're shy and kind of like introverted, you know, I understand. And of course, Peter was not introverted, but they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they all went out and shared Christ, everybody. The meek, the introverted individual, and the extrovert alike shared Christ because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So that's something I don't really have too much to say about right now, maybe in the future we'll talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit. But I do want to comment, it's a lot more than just running around the sanctuary and screaming and yelling. I was reading the story of a young man back in 1998, so it was a few years ago. He was playing basketball and he was shot on the basketball court, probably one of the big cities. They rushed him over to the hospital. For whatever reason, they came 40 feet short of the emergency room doors. So they left their friend there temporarily and they ran inside and they were asking for help. We got a friend outside, he's been shot, bleeding and all of that. And the hospital told the young men that brought him in that it was their policy, they can't treat anybody outside the hospital walls. Finally, a police officer came by, they had a wheelchair, they brought this young man in and he died. It's a good thing to come to services. It's a good thing to fellowship. All of these things are in the book, and we all need it. But if we continue to stay inside the walls of this church and forget that there's people shot and bleeding outside, spiritually speaking, it's only a matter of time before this church dies, sooner or later. But here's something that I really objected to when I first heard it years and years ago when I was a new convert. But then my habit is to mull things over in my mind to see if what I'm hearing is true or is it right, and if it's right, then I must concede to the point and change. And I remember a friend of mine was preaching one Sunday morning in the church where my wife and I attended back when we were first born again. And he was reading from Ezekiel. And God tells Ezekiel, he says, if a wicked man dies in his wickedness, well, he's definitely going to die. He says, but his blood I'm going to require at your hand. We know in cases here in our country that if you know of a crime that's being committed and so on and so forth, and you don't tell the truth when you're asked to tell the truth, you can either be counted as, number one, a co-conspirator in the crime, as you're part of the crime, or, at very least, that you were a witness to a crime and you didn't come forth to give the authorities any help. Whether it's intreatable in your mind or not, it really boils down to the ancient question that was brought up by Cain when God asked him, God said, where's your brother? He said, what am I, my brother's keeper? Am I supposed to know where he is? You see, unless you live with a sense of purpose in this respect, that if you know the truth, and I know that all of you here, you claim you know the truth, truth is here, right? Then it becomes a responsibility to tell others the truth. Again, you're not responsible for how they respond. You're not responsible for what becomes of them ultimately, but you are responsible to tell them the truth. And that is not always an easy thing. That's not always an easy thing. But it says, He that wins souls is wise. And let me just say this again, and I hope that this helps you more than irritates you. What is the sense in all the complaining that we're doing about politics, about the state of our country, about this and about that and about the other thing when we know the answer is Jesus? You know the old expression, it's better to light a candle than curse the darkness? From my point of view, we have a lot of people, and I'm talking about Christian people, all they're doing is cursing the darkness the darkness of Washington DC, the darkness of the state, the darkness of the county, darkness, darkness, why not light a candle? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, and you are the light of the world. So let your light shine, listen, so let your light shine among men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. And you get the picture. Now, from this point on, with just this little introduction, we have to already start to make a decision. If this makes sense to you, if you believe the Word of God, what decision are you going to make right now? Let's not wait till the end of the message. Right now. Are you going to say to the Lord, Lord, I am willing to be your man or your woman for this hour of history? Keeping in mind there's a price. It's not a free pass. You're going to go out into that battle. You're going to get scars. But are you willing to be a sole winner? And again, I'm trying to do this as an exhortation, loving exhortation rather than an irritation. But how are you using social media, one of the greatest tools that's been given to us in the history of mankind? And what? Someone promotes darkness, you're promoting more darkness? Light the candle. Light the candle. Tell people of Christ. I've exhorted you over the years, you know, a meme is very easy to make. It doesn't take a lot of creativity or artistic ability. Put a verse from the Bible, copy, paste, it's easy. I go on certain people's pages that they're asking for a friend request. That's the first thing I look for. I want to see what they're posting. Sometimes I just delete the request. I'm not interested in what they're involved in. Mostly I look for people, especially like preachers overseas, missionaries and so on. Not just missionaries, but indigenous people who are pastors and whatever they do. I'm looking to connect with other Christians. That's my purpose in life. I have friends, enough friends from the past as well, but we have one of the greatest tools given to us in the history of mankind. And I firmly believe that it was given to us to propagate the gospel. What other people do with it, well, of course, they do with it. But... How are you using your time when it comes to that? Think about it. There's more than one way to bring people to Christ. As you know, my testimony, I was brought to Christ by a gospel track that was put in my hand by another... I was 16, 17 at the time. By another young girl who was about the same age. She never spoke a word. She just put it in my hand. Or maybe she was saying something to me I wasn't interested and put it in my hand. Either way, it wound up in my hand. And I think I'll tell you this story very quickly. I used it before. So we used to go to a church down there, the Jersey Shore, where we vacationed. It was a Baptist church. And they were the ones that had the booth on the boardwalk, handing out tracts to people going by. They were there for many, many years, many, many years. Life in the Sun, that was the name of the booth. And so my wife and I, we went to this church. We'd take our kids on Sunday, go there and listen. To the Baptist preacher it was a good, good teacher, enjoyed it. Anyway, skipping some of the details of what led up to this event... I received an invitation from one of the deacons to come back and teach the Sunday School because of my testimony, because I had related to the deacon and the church was going through a major church split. And by the way, that church is no longer there. They won souls for decades. They won me. They were the tool that God used to win me so I could preach for these last 45 years. And then they were going through a major split and it was a story behind that. I've told it to you before. I'll tell it to you some other time in the future. And the deacon says, would you come back and tell your story to the Sunday school class? Because they were going through this difficult time. And I said, yes, I would. And my message to them that day wasn't so much a biblical lesson as an exhortation to keep going. Keep doing what you're doing. And I shared what God had done for my life. I shared that your church gave me a gospel track. I ordered a whole box of them from the ministry that made them. They still make them and read them all and was saved in my bedroom. And I said, you would never know this, and your church could never know this. I never spoke to anybody from this church, ever, till today. I shared the ministry that was going on in my life, and they were very, very encouraged. Now, as I just said, it was just this year. Coming around the bend when we first came into the little town there, church is gone. I mean, even the building is gone, and they got a condominium there. Why? They didn't win souls anymore. They won me. Well, Christ won me. I mean, you know that, but that was the tool they used, that God used. How many more they went to Christ, I wouldn't know, but I know that when I went back, and we went back 30 years or more to church there on vacation, that it was solid, it was orthodox, the teaching was great, but they forgot Jesus. They forgot to tell people about Jesus. They forgot to win souls. They forgot to go through what I'm going to take you through in just a moment, the plan of salvation. They forgot to tell people, as the tract, as you know, we have it in the back there, this was your life, spoke to me about I'm going to give an account to God at the end of my life. Well, no one ever told me that. Well, not in such a way to detract us. And I got the point, and I became born again. And Jesus saved me, that's for sure. And he saved me in a specific way because I think all the troubles that I've run into, I was saved by the Lord in my bedroom, and it was just a good thing. The church no longer exists. You take fruit, like these grapes I mentioned earlier, and you realize this is just about good enough that I can still use it. But then you look at a few of these other you know, pieces of fruit, There's nothing you could do with that, said, throw it in the garbage. It's no good. You can argue it's on the vine, but it's dead on the vine. It died on the vine. And I'm saying to you, local churches are dying now for this reason, that the mission has just been lost. They're not really even sure, and many church leaders are not even sure why they actually exist. Why are they really there? And then the people don't take this seriously. Well, the temporal result of that is that now the church is lost in this case of this one I'm talking to you about in New Jersey, it's just gone. The whole building's gone. There's no one there. And it's all because they lost their first love. I don't know how you can lose your first love with orthodox doctrine and everything in place as the Ephesians did, but the Bible says it can be done. And by the way, and that means you're praying for people. I have a routine a list that I go through and I pray for by name all these people that they will come to Christ. Some already have after years of praying. And let me just add this too. We have to get our prayers turned out. We've got to see that the main order of business is found in the 12th chapter of Ecclesiastes. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. That it really doesn't truly matter in eternity what degree you had, what school you went to, how much money you made, and all these things. What really matters in the end is are you saved from the wrath to come? That's what this Bible talks about. Now let me give you some help here. Many of you are familiar with this system. It's a little system called the Romans Road. And it's a very convenient way to lead someone to Christ. So turn with me to Romans chapter three. What I'm going to share with you that you should do is to take out a pencil or take out a pen. And as you come with me to Romans chapter three, verse 10, when I give you the next verse, at Romans three, chapter 10, you put in the margin of your Bible, the next verse. So then you don't even have to memorize it. I think it's better if you do memorize it but you don't have to. Now you'll be able to go through this Romans road and lead someone to the feet of Jesus, and then they decide at that point, or God decides at that point, whether this is going to be someone who's truly going to be saved. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. Power in that verse. You see, as I've told you over the years, if someone had approached me and asked me, are you saved? My response would have been, saved from what? And if they start to tell me, well, look at your income is not all that great and your job and whatever, that wouldn't have brought me to anything except, don't bother me, I'm living the way I want to live. Mm -hmm. But the way God designs it is to show people what the end of their life will be without Christ. There is none righteous. Now, you're going to be able to, under the aegis of the Holy Spirit, you're going to be able to take this verse here and then explain to people who often say, Hey, I'm not a bad guy. And I've had a lot of experience with this too. Sometimes when I'm confronted with that and they say, Well, I'm really not a bad guy. I, at that point, I just don't say anything. I said, Okay. And I've had instances over the years where they'll come back to me when they're broken, truly broken. Then ask the question, like, okay, what about this Jesus? What do I have to do? Because the conviction comes from the Holy Spirit, not from you and me. And it comes from the Word of God. I mean, that's kind of the beauty of it. You're going to take some abuse from people because they're going to say, don't tell me about this religious stuff or whatever. But at that point, as Ezekiel was told, if they die in their wickedness, they're going to die, but I'm going to make sure that you're held accountable for their blood because you didn't warn them. Now, if you warn them and they still don't turn, you're still clean. And obviously, if you warn them and they turn to Christ... Well, that's a bonus, but the obligation is to tell people, and we are not obligated for the response. What is sin? The breaking of the commandments of God. I've often talked to people, and I use the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5. Are you saying you've never committed adultery? Are you saying you've never bore false witness? You've never blasphemed the name of God, and so on. And the power of the scriptures cannot be underestimated of how it affects the conscience which is what has to happen. The conscience, I say, of America, but the conscience of people all over the world has got to be affected that they realize, guilty, that their own conscience is telling them before anybody else tells them. People do object to the fact that we point fingers. I say, people point fingers. I don't try to point fingers. I always try to say, look, I'm just like you. And I was just talking to someone just yesterday morning that was talking about being a preacher and what I do. And it's a friend of mine. And he told me the story of a woman that he knew who was very faithful to a local church that he named. On weekends, I think it was just weekends, but maybe on a daily basis, she and her husband were bookies, the May book. And the point was very clear. He was saying, they're telling me I need Christ, but they're dealing with illegal gambling on the side. I think she was a Sunday school teacher and she was a bookie, or helped her husband in that business. And I said to him, that's wrong. Christians can't say, well, look, I'm perfect. Well, of course, that's silly. I told him, I said, I don't do that. I'm not gonna project myself as this perfect image because I know I'm not. And that really communicates to people when you can be humble enough to say, I need Christ as much as you need Christ. The thing that has to be pointed out is that there is no one that's righteous before God. Now, in the margin of your Bible, next to Romans chapter 3, verse 10, put down Romans 3, verse 23. It's in the same chapter. For all have sinned, and come short of the glory of God. So you can see that it's closely connected to verse 10 because the Apostle Paul is expounding on a point here, and he's going to make a point. All have sinned. Now sin, let me define it for you again as we see it in First John. Sin, the Bible, King James Bible used the word transgression. It's the breaking of the laws of God. You're pulled over on the throughway, and your speed is excessive. You know it. The trooper pulls you over. He's clocked you at a certain speed. Now, it's difficult at that point to deny it. And I remember a friend of mine who was a trooper for many years, what he would do is he would say to them, did you realize you were going 80 miles an hour? And they would argue the point. They said, I wasn't going 80, I was going 75. And that's how he would trick them. He said, that's fine. I'm giving you a ticket for going 75 miles an hour. We want to argue for our own righteousness, but it doesn't exist by the law. And we won't cover this in depth today, but by the law, I mean the moral law, the Mosaic law, every commandment, ten of the Ten Commandments, that was violated or breached had the death penalty accompanied. Think about it, that's some hard stuff. Think about the man who was picking up sticks on the Sabbath when he was told not to, and he was stoned. Now again, intelligent readers of the Bible who do reject the Bible point stuff out like that, so you better know it. And you better not beat around the bush about well, you know how God doesn't need your apology. God doesn't need for you to say, Well, I'm sorry that he said that. No. God wrote the book, and that's a consolation to me, because I would always tell people, I didn't write this, but I believe it. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the first thing that we're doing is we're eliminating that there's anybody who's righteous enough to go before God on their own. And there's a lot of good people in the world. I mean, I'm serious about that, like do good things. What we read in Isaiah, he says, but our righteousness is like filthy rags. We need something more than that. For instance, if you murdered somebody, and if it's a state that still has the death penalty in place and you're found convicted beyond reasonable doubt, and maybe in some cases, which is rare, beyond any doubt, you can't go before people and say, I deserve to live. You took a life. Even in God's book it says, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You took a life, now you give your life. That's what it says. You can't argue that, but I'm righteous. So that we start with the gross example. We go down to the minor things. And the conscience, our conscience tells us you are guilty. I was pulled over by a trooper many years ago, very close to Christmas. And I gotta be honest, I was wondering why I was passing cars so quickly <laughs> when my speedometer said I was only a few miles above the speed limit. And the trooper pulled me over and I'm trying to figure out, I wasn't going that fast, but I was wondering why I was passing people. And he says, do you realize how fast you were going? I said, yeah, I was doing like what, 65 or whatever, 66, 7. He says, you're going 83. I said, 83? Really? I said, I really was wondering why I was passing by these people. My speedometer was broke. And so I told him, I said, I think my speedometer is broke. He says, why? Well, all right, well, fine. He gave me some kind of a plead out or a plead this thing. I just paid it. But the point is, we're not going to be able to stand before God and say, my speedometer is broke. Because there's one in the inner man that's called conscience. And every time you say, I'm, I'm, you tell me, I'm not guilty. it's spinning around saying, yes, you are. And many, many people object to that because they think it's Pastor Ray or somebody else that's making them feel guilty. It's not me. It's your conscience. It's inside you. And so we appeal to the conscience. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which means heaven will not be your home. All right. In the margin next to Romans chapter 3, verse 23, come with me to Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Now here, if you want to give context to who you're speaking to, it's talking about Adam. Adam was told, don't do this. Eve did it, Adam did it. And so we read in verse 12 in Romans chapter 5, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now you really don't have to go much further into verse 13, then it gets a little more complex explaining about the law as we would study that. But in sharing with someone here, we need to point out that sin equals death, but not the physical death which everybody experiences, but an eternal death as we read from this Anglican book, The Consolations of Religion. And it's written well, it's written throughout the Bible, the second death. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For the wages of sin we just seen is death. We're going to get to it in chapter 6. We must establish that there's no way to heaven without an atonement. That's where we're heading, right? You know that? We must establish that there's no one that's righteous. And I always want to add this for us here as Christians. Every so often visit, well, when we examine ourselves on Sunday mornings, that's good. And every once in a while, you know, just visit your past. Not for long. Don't dwell on it. But just remember from where you came. Because one of the things that I see is problematic with Christians as they go on in years, they forget where they came from. Let me just give you this quickly. I ran a little experiment, and that's all it was, on my daily show, The Oasis, and I was talking about Alec Baldwin, the trouble that he's in. You know how many people, mostly conservative people, just want the hammer to fall on this guy? They want him to get really slammed. Because look at all the stuff that he said and Saturday Night Live stuff. Well, I don't support that stuff that he did. But here was my angle. Speaking to Christians, I said, how many of us came to Christ when we were at our lowest point in our life? How many of you can say, I came to Christ at the lowest point in my life? I did. Now, wouldn't it be nice if you had some conservative saying, die. We want you to die. Now, I'm not all that dumb, and I would say, you want me to die? How about you die? (laughs) So you don't like Alec Baldwin, okay? That's your prerogative, I guess. But your job is to win souls. So I put in my little talk that day, and again, it was an experiment. And in that there, I was talking about his brother, who is saved, and he goes to a church where I have some friends in that church. And I was just saying, hey, maybe now he could be like his brother. But you know, some people were adamant. They wanted the hammer to fall on Alec Baldwin. Now keep this in mind. He will be judged without mercy, who has shown no mercy. This is why people reject, not Christ, but they reject Christians. Because we can often present ourselves as holier than thou you got problems. I don't. You're guilty. We don't say that, but it's how it comes off. And especially as you go on and you know a little bit more about the Bible and you're pretty savvy, we can come off as you need to really, really be punished. But me, not so much. And that's not said, but the spirit and tenor of the conversation or the speech, that's how it goes. So I'm going to suggest to you, when you're sharing the gospel with people, that you remember where you came from that you remember how low you were when Christ reached down to you and he said, follow me. I've not forgotten a day of where I've come from. Now, in the margin of Romans 3.23, write Romans 5.12. All right, now in the margin of Romans 5.12, let's go over now to Romans 6.23, the verse that I just mentioned. For the wages of sin is death. That's the bad news. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And obviously, that's the good news. That's the good news. I contend earnestly, how in the world can anybody come to Christ and be saved if they don't actually know they're lost? How can they have the hope of heaven when it's already presumed that without Christ, that's where they're going, which many people do. And the religions of the world, which have now flooded our country, are presenting this type of picture. Whether it's reincarnation and all of these things until you reach nirvana or other methods and other ways to see God and even become God, we now have a lot to contend with because the church, capital C, fell asleep at the wheel many long years ago before we were born. And in a manner of speaking now, we are left with this mess. But I don't think that we can totally claim that we haven't been part of it too. Because of all the years I just asked you, you said, oh, I, yeah, I led so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so to the Lord. And I asked you to think, how long ago has that been? And my guess, and it's just a guess, that for the majority of you, it's going to be a long time ago. What happened all in between? Do so I have to point out the obvious, as I do almost every single week? We're living in a world down here. In fact, we're actually placed in a city that desperately needs Christ. Desperately needs Christ. Will we watch them die outside the walls of the church and saying sorry, we don't go out there. We don't do that. We don't go out there. You bring them in here, you know, we'll preach and pray. But we don't go out there. It's not likely that they're going to be here until we do go out there. And I'm going to suggest what's better than having an evangelistic program where you go out on one day, which is not bad. We did it back in the Bronx. Knocking on doors just cold. What's better than that, in my mind, is daily. Everybody who professes Christ... Praying, God, lead me to somebody today. Uh, Years ago, I used to take a track and put it in my pocket. Just one. I wouldn't take six. I would only take one. This, I say, Lord, is for somebody today. And I remember being in the mall with my wife when our kids were small. A young woman, I forget all the details of that story. But she came up to me and started asking me for some help or some advice. She didn't know who I was. And we got talking a little bit, and I said, Do you think it's any mistake that God had you come to a pastor? Because I thought it was a pastor eventually. And she said, no, I don't think so. And I pulled out the track, but I prayed over it. I prayed over that one track. Now you could take six, 60, 600, that's your business. I would take one because that would be my goal is to make sure I spoke to at least one person. Where she is today, I wouldn't know, but I did give her an invitation to come to the church and so on. That was the end of my responsibility. Now it was on her. She could be like me, she could be someplace serving in a church somewhere, doing very, very fine. And I remember the day that we talked in the mall. But how long has it been that since you shared Christ? I don't even say bring them, won them. Christ wins them. How long has it been since you shared Christ with someone? That you actually shared Jesus with somebody? How long has it been? And how long is the list of people that you can name, whoever they are, and say, these are the people that I won to Christ? Well, let's make it accurate. That Christ won because you made yourself available to talk to them and tell them that the wages of sin is death. And again, I want to submit this to you. Is there really anything else more important than this? Well, according to the Bible, there's not. Now, there's many important things in life. I'm saying, is there anything even more important than this? And, of course, there isn't. Now, in the margin of Romans 6 and verse 23, write Romans 5, verses 8 and 9. So we're going backwards. Romans 5, 8 says, But God commendeth his love toward us, In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. I just did my Bible study, for those of you who do watch online Wednesday night, the message I've used here before, preached in the pulpit. Perilous times have come. Does anybody have any doubt about that? Perilous times have come. It seems to me to be self-evident that we are living in perilous times. It's on every side. I can't think of anybody who's saying nothing wrong with me. You know, everything's fine. I have a guy that I'm acquainted with and I know, and every morning I'll ask him, hey, how's it going? Great, 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 great. And he makes the claim, I have never had a bad day in my life. That may be true if you just keep flipping things. You know, you take what's negative and you flip it and say, well, this is going to work for my good, and it's a Romans 8.28 type of passage. I'm not sure that he's a believer, but then I, yeah, okay. But there's no way that he's lived as long as he's lived and he's close to my age without troubles and trials and tribulations. Maybe he just turned them and he wants to look at them in a positive way, which is fine. But does anybody really have a serious consideration that, no, these are not perilous times. We're hearing of wars and rumors of wars. You have that going on over there, and then you have this going on over here, and you have this going on over here. And this is self-evident that we've come to perilous times. And so even more so, we should be motivated to take these verses that we're writing in our margins, in our Bibles, and take people down the Roman's Road if they're willing to go. I was on the same boardwalk, by the way, and this came to me a few days ago, prior to me taking that one track from the young girl a year or two earlier than that. There was a man and his wife on the beach. It was nighttime, and they were sharing the gospel, I guess, with people. I didn't know anything. And I remember she came up to me, and I was sitting with my buddies, and she began to talk about Christ. And every time she proposed something, I asked the question, well, then how come of this, and why that, and all that? And finally, she said, well, you know what? Let me get my husband. He's much better at answering these questions than I am. And when she went back down to the beach, we were up on the boardwalk sitting on the bench. I told my buddies, let's just go. Let's just get out of here. You see, at that point, she was no longer responsible. That was my decision to not listen to this anymore. But eventually, I was listening. That's why I'm here today. Praise God. Because someone took the time. A stranger on that boardwalk, another stranger on the other end of the boardwalk, same place. But eventually, the seed went down in my heart and I was saved and born again. And in my case, God called me into full-time ministry. But the truth of it is, we are all in ministry. We're not all called to be pastors. We're not all called to be in charge, but we're all in ministry. You're in ministry, all of us. And it's a moral obligation to reach, as the book says, the lost. And then the good news again, God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners with the death penalty on our lives, Christ died in our place to take away not again some sins but every trace of sin i want to tell you about another inmate who was also convicted of murder john currier he lived some years ago and he was given a life sentence and in the course of time they diminished his sentence and then he did maybe 20 years or so in prison 25 years and then he was released but when he was released during that period of time, they just took his sentence and just took it away altogether, so he was no longer any penalties at all. But no one ever told him, the sentence that was on you has now been totally taken away. So for 10 years, he labored someplace in Tennessee, but nobody ever told him, there's no more penalty. So one day, it was a parole officer who discovered this and found out what was going on. 10 years of his life was spent in unnecessary anxiety, not knowing that the penalty was removed. How many friends of ours, family members, whoever, don't know that the penalty of sin has been removed by the cross of Christ. Obviously it has to be applied to their lives, but they need to know. Romans chapter 10, verse nine and 10 is the next one you put in your margin. Next to Romans 5, eight and nine. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And that's what the book says. We teach our children, churches have for years. If you're saved, then you know it. Clap your hands. If you're saved, then you know it. When you're saved, you know it. How do you know it? Well, the book, of course, but the Holy Spirit communicates to you that you are a child of God. You know it. You don't need that validation. You need encouragement, but you don't need the validation from every minister on the planet who's going to examine you. I've had a lot of that, too. But from the day I was saved, I just knew I was saved. I walked into a church after receiving Christ in my bedroom. Because I knew I had to go be inside church services, be with believers. And at the end of the service, pastor was at the front door, you know, greeting people. He was shaking my hand. He said, are you saved? I said, yes. I wasn't really even sure all that he meant. I just knew that I was. Are you saved? Yes. Someone asked me one time, are you saved? I said, yes. Are you sure? I said, yes, I'm sure. And you know, that would beg a question at this point. Are you sure? Uh, Okay. So you're sure? And what about your friends now? What about your family members? I say, Pastor, they may reject me. More than likely, some of them will. So already prepare for that. I've had people tear a track up right in front of me. at the to hand it to them. Another guy, a friend of mine at the time, I handed him the track. I said, hey, why don't you read this? And he shoved it back in my hand. I said, you read it. I said, I already read it. <laughs> and you know, you're not prepared when it's coming from someone that's a friend. But that's just the way it goes. And we've got to get some thicker skin than we have at the moment. We have to realize that not everybody we talk to is going to respond favorably. But let me just bring this back down to practical matters as well. Churches are dying and have been dying and will continue to die because they're not winning souls. They're not bringing people to Christ. And more than that, and again, I'm trying to exhort you and not insult you. Oh, it's my knees, oh, it's my back, I'm getting old, all this stuff. You know, the truth of it is that the older you get, the better you are soul winning because you got more experience. I'm much better for any of you than I've ever been in my whole life because I'm older. Yeah, I got achy knees, I got an achy shoulder, I have an achy neck, and a few other things that, you know, are just coming with age. And what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to be at my post. I'm supposed to do what I'm supposed to do. And part of that is not saying, now you guys go out and win souls. Remember, I'm the pastor, I don't do that. When I'm out there, I do the same thing I'm telling you to do, and I have been all my life. And I can give you a list of the people that I have won personally to the Lord, not through radio and television and other things, but personally. And that's your obligation. Now the question is, and I'll give you this one last one, what are you gonna do? Romans 10, 13, after Romans 10, 9 and 10, put in your margin, Romans 10, 13, and this is the end. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Saved. If there was ever a time I think the word saved communicates, I would think that this would be the hour when we're talking about the climate, the environment, wars, rumors of wars, diseases, pestilences, and on and on and on. I would think that this would be an opportune time Using social media appropriately, use it to the advantage of your Savior Christ, your Commander-in-Chief Jesus, and stop cursing darkness and promoting more darkness, light a candle. Tell people about Christ. But whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The book says, goes on to say, we are saved from the wrath to come. Saved. For those of you who've been in church for a while, you remember the hymn, Saved? by his power divine, saved to new life divine. Life now is sweet and my joy is complete because I'm saved, saved, saved. And you may remember I told you this story years ago. I want to repeat it now and finish. Mordecai Ham was a great evangelist who lived at the turn of the century. He was just very effective in his preaching. He was from Texas and he was preaching one day and there was a man who came in, just happened to be another convict and he had murdered four people. How he got out of jail, I don't know that, but I do know he was in the tent meeting that night with Mordecai and He was talking about Christ as our refuge. Christ, the cross, the blood. And he sat there, and it just struck him. Christ wants to save me. Christ has saved me. And he just jumped up the door in the meeting and said, Saved! 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 And shortly after it, that hymn was written, Saved by his power divine, Saved to new life sublime, Life now is sweet and my joy is complete because I'm saved, saved, saved. saved. (laughs) Let's go before the Lord and let's just take a little bit more time, I mean like a minute or two, just to examine ourselves. And you can be sure of this, churches are definitely dying on the vine with good doctrine, orthodox teaching, a good pastor, good programs, lots of good things. But little by little, year by year, as they're not winning souls, the churches die. And they eventually disappear. So let's go before the Lord. And it's not really to save the legacy of this ministry, this pastor. It's to do what is right in the sight of the Lord. Remember during communion, I told you, sin is not just what you do that wasn't supposed to be done. It was not doing what was supposed to be done. And this, above all, in combination with your own personal prayer time and your Bible reading, is what must be done in this hour. Are you prepared to take people and just introduce them to Christ? What they do with Christ from that point is not your responsibility, but at least your heart and your conscience is clean. And don't tell them about great programs, at least not first, in the church. Tell them what they need for Jesus. that They need Christ. Are you willing to be obedient to God? Ye are my witnesses. In both Old and New Testaments, God says that. I pray that you are. I know that I am. And pray that God would strengthen all of us in this duty that we have. Lord, we started out by reading your word, which says, He that wins souls is wise. Help us to be wise. Help us to be wise that cursing the darkness is not as good as lighting a candle. Help us to know, God, that promoting somebody's flesh and blood and their ideology is not near as good as lifting Jesus higher. Because that is the program you have ordained. Help us, Lord, on this day to become winners of men's souls. Once again, you're the soul winner. We're the tools in the toolbox. That little girl, young girl, on the ballwalk many years ago handed me a gospel track, and she was the tool you used that night to introduce me to Christ. And from that day to this, I've been an ardent student of your word. I pray that every single person, both sitting here, watching on the live stream, listening on the radio, would take this message seriously and bring Christ to the people. Bring Christ to the people. Give them the encouragement they'll need when they're rejected, but then again, Jesus said, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. So be it. But at least let us know that we did our duty, what we were supposed to do. Lord, I pray that this church and many others like it would see people truly getting saved, that we would just be running out of room. Those people are convicted and convinced by the Holy Spirit of their own sin. I pray, Lord Father God, that we would not be like Ephesus, With all the good things Ephesus had, Jesus said, you left me, you left your first love, repent, or I'm taking the candle away. That's a dying church. Lord, I don't know about anybody else. I don't want to be part of a dying church. I want to be part of a living church, a thriving church, a church that's reaching out to those that will be dead probably by the end of the week from an overdose of heroin or whatever they're facing. Help us, God, to be agents of life and your messengers. And this is our duty in this hour of history. We give you praise. We give you glory. As we launch in the first day of the week, Sunday, your day, the Lord's day, into the rest of the week, we ask you to give us the anointing and the boldness that we need through the power of the Holy Spirit to lead people to Christ. And let us be able to see as a bit of satisfaction with our own eyes, then more and more filling up this sanctuary, coming and sitting in seats, and then baptizing them as we have over the years baptized so many. Just pour out your spirit, God, and help us to love you and to love each other. And Father God, once again today, we give you all of the praise, all of the glory, and all of the honor. In Jesus' mighty name. Can you say amen today? Amen.